0: Have been on a slow downward spiral for a few years now. From the highs of 1995, when they finished as runners up with this. They went all the way down to the foot of the table two years ago with Lydia. No,
1: no escuchar, susurrar, querido,
0: the public were then listened to for last year with a song that may or may not be about Colgate. but they only just picked up their head from the bottom of the pile, finishing 18th. They needed to do better. Clearly relegation wasn't a problem, but doing well was clearly in the design brief for Eurocantheon 2001, and that message went out to Spanish songwriters because over a thousand songs were eventually submitted to TVE, and some people who clearly needed a medal got that massive amount of songs down to 20, all of whom turned up at TVE in Madrid on February 23rd, 2001. YouTube tells me that Euro Canción lasts for three hours and three minutes, four minutes longer than the actual contest, and you know you're going to be in for a long evening when it takes you 12 minutes to get to the first song, navigating your way through some of Eurovision's best and worst ever entries, sung by an ageing cast of stars. This then led straight into the first song, laughingly entitled Musica Musica, sung very badly, by a boy band dressed in leather jackets, stetsons and fans. Your lead singer clearly had nerves, or was used to singing with auto autotune because, well, take a
1: listen.
0: And shockingly, that didn't end up in Plum Last Place. In third place, we have this. Bear is sung by Mina, who has a fantastic voice, it has to be said, but 21 years later, the song seems incredibly old-fashioned, and I suspect that most of Europe would have thought so at the time as well. It's a mid-tempo plodder sung by someone who looks like your auntie singing at a karaoke machine dressed in some sort of purple dress. The runner-up was called Anadi di Comoati, sung by High Priority, high as in Hello Sailor rather than any indication of their finishing position. High Priority were actually a rebrand and retooling of this group. La Decada Prodigosa, and they'd clearly been watching Eurovisions in the run up to this performance because they literally threw a bit of everything at the Spanish public. Two boys and two girls singing and dancing around the stage like steps. But from the fans of the old contest, the boys ripped off the girls' skirts and it could be seriously argued that they were the closest either of the boys had ever got to a woman in their lives up to this point. (laughs) Eurovision Network News described this performance as having plenty of energy, I really must use their damning with faint praise phrase book in Liverpool next year. The winning song was performed immediately after this one and, in stark contrast, did actually have some energy.
1: Que que
0: Dile, que la me... Dile Que La Quiero was a song that had Eurovision running all the way through it. It was written by Alejandro Abad who had entered Eurovision himself with this in
1: 1994
0: where he finished in 18th place. He then went away and licked his wounds and won the OTI Song Festival the following year. He was then also invited to several Latin American song contests as a juror and clearly this is where the seed of an idea was forming. He had discovered our singer, David Civera, whilst he was performing on the Spanish version of Stars in Your Eyes back in 1996, impersonating Enrique Iglesias. He failed to win that show, but was given the classic backhanded compliment of having his own style. He had a small and not very successful career in Spain, and then Alessandro advised David to go into Eurocantheon, presumably because where else could you be seen by millions of people all in one go? Dile Que La Quiero is a classic Latin love song with the boy angsting over his woman who's left him and confessing his undying love for her. Throw in a good-looking boy gyrating his hips, some Spanish guitars, castanets in the backing track and a couple of dancing girls, and you have something that smells as Spanish as a greasy waiter in a restaurant or paella. It didn't drop a point in the scoring, and David was packing his bags for Copenhagen almost immediately, albeit with a song that was longer than three minutes. Don't worry, though they ended up cutting out a bridge in the first verse which, conveniently, got it back under time. TVE didn't feel the need to change anything between Madrid and Copenhagen. Why would they? They had a product that was authentically Spanish. They introduced the backing singers onto stage, standing at a discreet distance from the talent, and contrasted that with two similar to the Spanish final backing dancers who were mic'd up, but I suspect that they don't do any of the singing What with them gyrating around David, who was in increasing danger of dislocating a hip throughout this performance? My problem, and by extension, Spain's is that it oozed sangria from every pool just that little bit too much for anyone outside of the Iberian Peninsula to get really properly excited by it. Ricky Martin may have been a thing back in 2001, and would still be a living La Vida Loca. No, not that. But David just wasn't, how can I phrase this politely, pretty enough to get both wings of the Eurovision Song Contest voting together as one. It wasn't particularly easy on the eye and whilst it's still a song contest the song is essentially just two forgettable verses and bet all of its marbles on the earworm chorus which places a lot of reliance on actually just singing the title over and over and over again until you remember what it's called it's certainly a tactic but it's not one that would win friends and influence people around europe apart from israel who gave it 12 points it got an eight and two sevens but when it scored. It was low scoring in the main, and they came at regular enough intervals for Spain to end up finishing in 6th place with 76 points. Bearing in mind most of the first half of this contest, what do you mean you haven't heard last month's review cast yet, were bottom feeders with just a 5th and a 10th place finished amongst them, there were a lot of places to fill, and I'm still surprised it finished as high as it did. Spain were pleased though they just managed to get their equal highest placing since 1995 and, as it would turn out, the highest place they'd attained for the next 21 years. To celebrate this success, TVE went away and created the mother, father and sister of all casting shows, Operation Triunfo Operation Triumph. How did that work out for you? Now you see, I never thought I'd say this, but the theme from Treasure Hunt is exactly the right piece of music at the right time. In this metaphor, Annika Rice is played by the last five French entrants, four of whom combined for less points than a young fanny got. Easy tiger. And The Clue is clearly a blue card that says how to do well at Eurovision written in Comic Sans font. Well, it is 2001 after all. I don't know who Kenneth Kendall and Wincy Willis are in this play, but feel free to think about it, write it down on a piece of paper, then eat the piece of paper and never speak of it again, because the treasure hunt theme is not for people only five of you have ever heard of.
2: You have one message from You'll Stop the Clock Writing Team. Kenneth Kendall and Wincy Willis are, in no particular order, Jonathan King and Stefan Raab.
0: I think I'm going to be sick. France Tois were none too pleased with its televiewers, They'd had a large break where they didn't have the national selection and then they brought it back two years ago and promptly missed all the good songs and scored a total of 19 points between both of their entries since then. Deciding that the French couldn't be trusted, France said mais to that shit and went looking for a singer and a song themselves instead. They found a 20-year-old French-Canadian massive marks for originality there called Natasha St-Pierre. The daughter of a nurse and a juvenile detention centre director, she started singing publicly young and released her first single at the age of 12 and her first album at the age of 14. At 17, she'd moved into musical theatre, taking the lead in the show Notre Dame de Paris. By mid-2000, she'd teamed up with Robert Goldman, who had written songs for Celine Dion, Surprise, and other French singers, and decided to write a song whilst, and I am not making this up, he was in Norfolk. And now, from Norwich... It's the
2: quiz of the week.
0: I bet he didn't hire Peter Fenn on the Anglia TV organ for his jam sessions either. His loss. The most striking thing about this song in the run-up to the contest was the fact that there was even a discussion that the song was going to be sung partly in English. Sacre bleu and etc. said most people in France. It was going to be the first time that a song from France had had some words in English in it, and not just words either. The rumour was a whole verse and a chorus. I can imagine Eurovision fans of throwing themselves off the nearest building at the mere thought, and the OGAE would have written sharply worded letters of complaint on their sign organisers. Francois didn't care. They knew they had something that they hadn't had for at least five years. Someone who could sing. Coupled with a song that the whole of Europe could turn their heads to and go, France, that's France is that. I mean, the fact that Natalie was singing a song that could have been written for and sung by Celine was pure coincidence. Oh dear me, yes. Yes. Did singing that last part in English help or hinder it? Personally, I think it made little to no difference. I can tell that there are probably lyrics that have been shoehorned into the song in a vain attempt to make it sound natural, and that's why it's done at the end of the song rather than halfway through, but your television viewers wouldn't have given a damn about that. They were too busy having their heads turned by the nice lady in a red dress being all French on their telly screens and oh my god it's in English now. If she'd have sung a rousing French bit at the end of the song, I suspect she would have got just as many points out of it as she did. That would be 142 of the buggers with three 12s, Bosnia, Portugal and the Russians, and it scored consistently high to middling points across Europe except in Malta where it scored out, and in Spain where it scored just the one, and it ended up in fourth place overall. This song gave France their highest score to date and it's only been beaten twice since. Natasha has had a successful career out of it, and as for her songwriter, trying to repeat his success, he clearly went away to a worse place than Norwich when he wrote this for
1: 2015.
2: (laughs) Eastbourne, perhaps? Mr. Phil. You have one incoming message from the chief vet at DEFRA concerning a possible outbreak of avian influenza in your area.
0: Ah, the popular Estonian indie band. That's new. Go ahead there.
2: Do you have any chickens? No. Ducks? No. Pigeons? No. Cormorants? Let me check. No. Tits?
0: That's rather personal. No.
2: Ostriches? No. Pied wagtails? No. Flamingos?
0: Alexia, this podcast is already running at over seven hours. Please just get to the point and ask me if I have a rather rough-looking turkey before our long-suffering listener gets bored and puts something by Giles Brandreth on instead. Turkey? Yes, yes I do, thank God you asked. Turkey. Possibly the Eurovision nation of the 2000 and noughts, although only two years away from their first win at this point. Possible spoiler
1: there.
0: They've already established where the podium is. The spectaculars of Hadis, Keenan Dogulu, Athena, Sibel Tazun, and Morveotis, none of which sadly have any surviving audio footage remaining following a mysterious fire at the DR archive later this evening, were already rolling off the conveyor belts. The fragrant Leilaklar of Bucket Bengisu were imminent. <laughs> And in 2001? Honestly, not very much. Just a proof of concept that under televoting they could have entered literally nothing whatsoever and still nearly break the top ten with it. Gilly's Son, The End of Love, or something along those lines, In my every song, every word, in any night of mine without you, you were there. No, Sadat, in any night of yours without her, she wasn't there, was she? That's literally what made them nights without her, you fool. I dislike this less than Haldor Legride, as did somewhere between 7 and 21 of the juries. And it filled whatever would otherwise have been an awkward four to five minute silence in between France and the United Kingdom. So I guess it served a purpose. Let me take you back, dear listener, to the early part of 2001 when you were young and I was probably even younger. And the BBC had totally lost the plot about the European Contest of populist song. There were only four years removed from winning the damn thing, and three years from coming second, but they still didn't get it. They didn't understand the concept of televoting in a Europe-wide sense, and they still believed they could put anything into the contest because UK in it. Now, granted, this could have been any year in the last 20, but 2001 was a particularly bad patch. We'd just come off our worst entry in terms of position ever. So surely that would have to jolt us into doing something new and radical and etc, but no, the BBC did what the BBC do, bury their head in the sand and make the same mistakes time and again, and to that end, they precisely did nothing different for A Song for Europe 2001, apart from, with input from Basker, make people pay £47 or £70.50 if you were non-members to enter the darn thing. A professional panel consisting of the BBC, the British Academy and the Music Publishers Association whittled an unspecified number down to the final eight for a radio semi on the 22nd of January. This would have been the fifth time that they'd have tried that and would persist with it for another three years in an example of the BBC going, well we won in 97 so it must be totes fine. The truth is probably even simpler. There was no will to do anything with the actual song selection. They didn't have the guts at that time to take it internal. Fnaw. So the powers that be left it to wither on a vine and die of its own accord, only ploughing in resources when the Saturday night came along because the Eurovision final makes good a telly. That would be a continuing theme as well in the following years. That radio semi eliminated four songs. Hold
2: and- on, Mr. Phil. You are glossing over a chapter in your storied Eurovision history.
0: Yes, thanks, Alexia. I really, really didn't want to draw attention to it.
2: You write this script and record my voice. Don't talk bullshit.
0: That's a fair point. So yes, in case you didn't know, I was actually the nominated musical director for this. It got to the last 50, and I was probably three steps away from bringing the orchestra back to the contest. Aren't you lucky it was sidestepped? Anyway, that radio semi-final eliminated four songs, including, our writing team tells me, the anointed favourite. It was supposed to not only get through this bit, but walk the next bit. It forgot that Radio 2 listeners aren't quite the same demographic as the finalists would face, and so it didn't get anywhere. That final took place on a dull, wet Sunday afternoon. How do I know this? Because I travelled from On Europe Towers to Wood on that Sunday, so I could attend my first and to date only UK national final as a punter. I know, right? I was young and it was all so new and everything. We had to apply for our tickets because you couldn't just buy them because the finals on BBC premises. So when I got the call, I nearly screamed the place down. We were kept waiting in the rain for what seemed like an eternity before we were all shepherded in unceremoniously to the top of the pop set. My first and abiding memory of that day was that it looked bigger on the telly. We were moved from stage to stage by the floor manager as the four plucky contestants sang their songs. Lucy Randall first,
2: easy easy
0: followed by Nana, yes that's Nana, who was clearly the talent singing a song that the six chicks from last year sung in demo, but as that has disappeared from YouTube, let's have the final version instead. Talking, talking. Then your winner, then Tony Moore, a member of Iron Maiden and Cutting Crew, no less. Then we had some voting whilst The Magnet, winner of another talent show and no I don't remember which one either, entertained in air quotes the six people at home that had bothered to tune into this rubbish. Then we had the results. Lucy was third. Tony Moore was second. So it ended up between Nana from Sweden who had done Eurovision to death and 15 year old Lindsay Dracast from Sheffield. Spoiler, Nana's name was not called. She ended up finishing last and Lindsay hadn't. I happened to be stood next to Lindsay's mother at the precise moment she was singing the little reprise. I happened to be stood next to Lindsay's mother at the moment she was singing the reprise, and I turned to her and said words to the effect that I liked the song and she'd do well in Copenhagen. I also saw Mr. Tipsheet's CD out of the core of my eye in a white puffer jacket. I'd made my excuses and left rather quickly. <laughs> I was clearly young, dear listener, because No Dream Impossible was a bit of a dog. Most people thought that we were doomeder than a doomed thing, but, being that young, I was ever hopeful for a good result. It was the kind of song I imagined would do well in Ironapa or the Canaries. Surely it would find some favour with both the whoopsies for the driving beat and the normal people? That faded quickly, however, as the rehearsal started and the realisation dawned upon me that Lindsay couldn't actually sing live. She went for, and failed to get. The high note at the end of the song, more often than not in rehearsals, and it was generally agreed that she'd have to nail that in order to do anything in the shake up. There was also a rap break in this song for reasons beyond my tiny brain. Well, it gave the gays something to look at, but I fear after seeing them sat drunkenly on a bench with Lindsay on the longest pedestrian street in the world that we were all out of luck. Thanks, Selma. The televoters of Europe saw this and went, what is this child doing on our screen? She's not insert dance artist of 2001, is she? And promptly failed to give it many points. They didn't give it a zero, but they didn't give it many more. The highest it got was a four from Ireland, because UK, and only another 10 juries thought it was worthy of any points at all. It ended up with 28 of them to finish down in 16th place, the UK's lowest position to date. Thank God we paid enough money to keep us from being relegated, because we would have been in a position to do so. Things would take a turn in 2002 before getting much, much, much worse. Whilst the rest of Europe's fans were having very loud orgasms over Melody Festival and being the greatest thing ever since sliced bread and all that shenanigans, some of us were heading in a very different direction. I had my head turned by Slovenia's Ema Selection Show. During the formative years of the internet, this, and not Sweden, was what I thought was the mutz nuts, so to speak, because in my humble opinion it had the better songs. 2001's vintage should be seen as Exhibit A in that case, my lud. There are several great songs in this version and thankfully three of them ended up in the top three positions. In third place we have perennial third placer Olenka Godets. singing a song which shares similarities with her best attempt two years later. Tinkara from 13 years hence finished in second place with a song in which she plays the flute. He went and let the televoting rankings as well, but they were only weighted as having 33% of the total score, and the official jury and a panel from the broadcaster in a not-smelling-dodgy-at-all kind of way chose… something else. Nusha Dorinda, a 31 year old songstress, had already had a career. Wikipedia tells me that her parents became aware of her singing at two and a half, clearly singing nursery rhymes to the Slovene equivalent of our backyard. At the back, you know,
1: the back. Not
0: the front, but the back. At the back
1: of our.
0: Sidebar here, that is the most condescending opening to any television show ever. Back to Nusha, though, she started singing in choirs, playing the accordion, and wanted to become a nursery school teacher, but decided sitting down telling stories to a bunch of bored five-year-olds paled into insignificance with the chance of becoming an international recording artiste. She'd had a go at some festivals on the telly box, and released some CDs before the bright lights of the Eurovision came a-calling. In between Ljubljana and Copenhagen, the composers retooled the song into English, renamed the song Energy, put Nyssa out in the snow with a red dress in a preview video and blew up a piano. I mention the piano not merely as an aside here, but because TV Slovenia used one in their five previous preview videos, and this time they got to destroy the damn thing. When this one got to Copenhagen, the only things destroying this one's chances of a big result were negative camera work by DR and the fact that the Slovenian Stylingo consulting department had decided to dress Nusser in fancy dress, looking like an angry wasp I feel such runs right me. I'm in It was all just too dark but at least they resurrected the pianos, and they multiplied. To my shock, it ended up finishing 7th with 70 points, and no 12s, and just won 10 from their neighbours Bosnia. TVP decided not to have a national final, but to select a song of their own choice, and for this bit, I am going to shamelessly steal words from Eurovision Network News once again. Platinum Records, prestigious awards, and other prizes at international music festivals make up the story of the last few years of PSX's career. Since he started working with Robert Czonyacki, whom he also wrote the Eurovision Song Contest entry with, he has been one of Poland's biggest stars. Even before meeting Robert, Piasek was a frequent feature in the Polish music scene. The many years of performing publicly had made Piasek completely at home performing live. Unlike so many other pop musicians, he also had other creative influences. Since 1997, He'd been playing a part in a Polish TV series and, recently, he played the Prince in a set-in opera production of Sleeping Beauty. Robert and Piasek started working together in 1995, and back then no one expected it to be the start of a great career. But their work together on the album Sax and Sex produced so many hits it became a major commercial success for both of them. Robert played the saxophone and, in addition to his work with Piasek in his band Dimono, which Robert spends a lot of energy on, that band has become one of the most successful ones in the Polish music history and Robert has been part of it from the start in 1987. He was greatly responsible for the band's seven albums. He's currently finishing another CD with Domono, not now, but obviously in 2001. So who's behind
1: the mask? You don't have to ask, I'll tell you all about me cards are on a table and I have willow to hide deep inside
0: But anyway, when this song got to Copenhagen, Piersack was clearly feeling the chill of the Danish spring because he came on to stage in a bear pelt, or possibly ermine, who knows, but almost immediately disregards it, therefore raising the question what was the point of spending money on getting it? To be fair, he might have got it from Oxfam, it was never actually confirmed. He then bops lightly around the stage doing a lot of pointing and singing to the crowd rather than to the cameras whilst his three backing singers do some sort of prancing in the background, but the cameraman almost ignores completely and they seem to get their gobs on shot by accident. The whole song, if I'm honest, feels just like an accident. No, no, not in a car crash kind of way, but in a way that someone might have just wrote something in a jam session and then decided to enter it to the big show. It doesn't have a hook, apart from the title, which is annoyingly spelt with the number two in too long for reasons. It doesn't really have a verse either, and P.S.X. seems to be sewing the whole package to me on the fact that he's rather a good-looking man. The Sex, obviously. The very definition of an album track, you say? Yes, definitely. But not even I would buy that album. When the points were being handed around, the televoters forgot about this song as well, presumably because it's incredibly hard to sit down and work out reasons why you would cast a vote for it, rather than let the massive wave of apathy this song engenders overtake you. It got 11 points. Five of them from Germany meant that they finished down in 20th place and relegated. Talking of Germany... As in so many of these recent reviews, the batshit quota is going to come from here, a country who, famously, have no sense of humour if you believe the red tops in the UK, that is. When it comes to Eurovision, though, they seemingly put their straight faces away and bring out the musical equivalent of the Whoopi Cushions and the Clowns, sometimes literally. And this final is the Eurovision equivalent of the 1970s K-Tel record collection, thankfully not available in any shops. The 2001 German Selection was one of those evenings where your jaw would just hit the floor at the beginning and then just stay there for the next 90 minutes as the increasingly bizarre proceedings played out across real player or on your television screens if you were unlucky enough to actually be in Germany. There are many, many things that this final is, and we'll get to them. But first, who'd like a bit of cod opera? No, not the goldfish singing an aria, but three grown men in tuxedos singing something akin to opera, written by those serial song killers Siegel and Manninger. It's a song song that sings of love and understanding, they sang, presumably as they goose-stepped into Poland. If you're imagining three hair flicks singing this song, that would be funnier than this Campoil nonsense. Talking of Campoil nonsense...
1: Halt freud und leid, <laughs> seid hilfsbereit, in die ging schritt für schritt. Halt freud und leid, reicht euch die Hand, dann wird die Welt ein Wunderland.
0: Why not get a singer in some grey military gear and a famous exuberant German fashion designer with a small dog singing a song with cheap Latin beats? The audience booed its displeasure. Two Brits and a Dutchman next, singing a version of Hit Me Baby One More Time before the Queen of Schlager ascended to her throne. More of her in a bit. This shit show goes on apace with an oversized bald man dressed as a Roman gladiator singing some sort of song with girls cavorting around him. A blond haired man whispering into the microphone. A rip-off of any Scorpion song ever by a man called Illegal Side Thousand and Nights. Joy Fleming looking more like Grot bags than Carol Scott ever managed, plus two other wannabes on stage. Zlatko, who is, apparently, a star from Big Brother and an awful singer. He got booed as well, by the way. More Scorpion wannabes. Someone called Kevin. Finally, just when you thought your fever dream was wearing off, you get confronted by the Germanic equivalent of Zelda from the Terrahawks singing another seagull and mining a composition about a birthday party.
1: Terrahawks, stay on this channel. This is an emergency.
0: however would be back two years later. I'm tempted just to skip to Estonia and not bother telling you who won because I literally have just killed off all of my remaining listeners. Well, let me remind you that you, yes you, have spent the biggest part of the last 20 years defending the contest to all and sundry but even this can't be defended as a piece of television. Surely this isn't what Baird and Marconi wanted for their little boxes of joy is it? The winner was song number four which had been edited out on the Countdown Grand Prix on YouTube, so I had to go hunting. Yes, that is her real voice, and yes, she isn't 12. Michelle was only her stage name. She was born Tanya Giesler Hoyer in 1972 and is, it says on YouTube, a German Schlager singer. I'd never have guessed that. Apparently, her big break was through a friend that worked at a state broadcaster, and she got the chance to perform on the old telly box back in 1993. People recognised her talent, such as it is, and she ended up being a great success with songs like this one and Stop Me If You Think It's a Bit Contrived. She followed that up with a couple of gold albums and favouritism in this contest, which she went and won, but only just, beating Joy and Chums and Lou in the superfinal. Michelle was no stranger to Eurovision either. She'd lost out to Bianca Schomburg in 1997 with this... written by the fantastically named John Frankfurter, so she knew what she was letting herself in for at least, unlike most of the other nutters in this final. When the Germans got to Copenhagen, they let Michelle not only ride her Harley-Davidson into her own delegation party, not a euphemism, upon which she looked tote ridiculous it has to be said, they also let her commit the cardinal sin of Eurovision, well a cardinal sin of eurovision she waved at the audience now i know what many non-eurovision fans are thinking she's on a big stage that's okay but no dear listener not at all if there's one thing above all else that you should never ever do at a contest is to show the belief that you think you've won that shit will just come back and bite you on the ass And so it came to pass like night follows day that it came back and bit her on the arse. If you couple that wave with the overall air of pouting and the look of smugness that was going across her face throughout the song, you get the inevitable conclusion that she didn't win. Also, they managed to shoehorn in some English at the end of the song as well as an afterthought because people need to understand what they're voting for, apparently. In the greatest Schlager contest of them all, Die Schlager-Kernigen failed because the song was just shit. Portugal and Spain liked it second best, but that was as high as it got, and, for reasons I still can't quite fathom, the Russians thought it was the third best song of the evening. No one else got it anywhere near that. But it picked up enough small scores to end up in 8th place with 66 points. Mind you, as I've said before, not everything in this contest could finish in a heap near the bottom of the scoreboard. Spoiler alert, Estonia win the 2001 Eurovision Song Contest. Now, I appreciate that this concept shouldn't come as a great surprise because ETV have been doing rather well of late. I mean, they've put in some decent songs in the main up to this point and their stock was definitely on the way up. So why then did the song that's often cited as the worst winner ever by people who have lost all semblance of taste, I mean you, radio's Lisa Jane Lewis amongst other people, actually pull it off? Well that, dear listener, it's a story in many parts. Firstly, off to old town in late 2000 we go, when the head of ETV called up one Mayan Ann Carmas and uttered the immortal words, Write me a winner. She'd written a sixth place for Estonia back in 1999, So they knew what they wanted from the outset, and they'd almost go to any lengths to get it. She then went looking for a music writer and found Evar Muster looking around in a dark alleyway. He needed redemption after this genius ended up with just two points back in 1994. <laughs> and they went and concocted a song more of which in depth later but first they had to win the yuroalul she came up handed to that final with three songs singing one of them herself and i'm pulling my shocked and stunned face before telling you that this piece of pop finished the worst of the three
1: no one can know.
0: International jurors can be stupid. Mind you, Estonian jurors aren't exactly the most hinged bunch because look at what they allowed into the final.
1: Why you so lazy and
0: and story finished last, unfortunately. At the other end of the scoreboard, it was a straight fight between this. A light piece of pop performed by a woman in a mohair jumper. God almighty, imagine the static on that. And that song from Mine and Eva. Every
1: night's a Friday night. Uh-huh. What man? A latest dish and right. I guess there's a party time. The two of us will sing again. Two of us together again. The heart young, we don't win. The young and handsome, they say. On, the sadness out the door. the out the door.
0: The singers, really a duo that can only ever happen at Eurovision, 21-year-old Tanel Padar, who was a shaven-headed 19-year-old, backed his girlfriend as Not a euphemism. Last year with this.
1: Give me wings and why, I'll be an angel in your sky Because I'm only, Once in a lifetime, my
0: mind. And 50-year-old Dave Benton Dave's not even his real name, and Estonia isn't even the country of his birth. He's from Aruba. He settled in Estonia after getting married to a woman he met on a cruise ship, who just happened to be Estonian. He was the one with the competitive singing experience as he'd taken part in the 1981 OTI Song Contest and finished in 20th place. And yes, YouTube has not let me down again here. They were joined on stage for moral support by a band called 2XL. No, not XXL, 2XL, who were a rather good-looking boy band comprising of Lowry, the one I had a crush on, Kaido, Sergei and Indrek, who were, sources tell me, produced by Yvonne Must, so that doesn't sound at all like they got the gig as an inside job then. Oh, dear me, no. It's a song that declares that every night is a Friday night, which has always perplexed me, because if that was the case, we'd never get to the Eurovision proper, and some might uncharitably say that's what should have happened here. Eurovision Network News described it as 70s disco, with the song not being strong enough to win. They and you had all bought into the narrative, the narrative being that you needed to be a good song to get the public of Europe to vote for you. This is not a good song but it is what ETV wanted it to be, a winner. You have the old man, the good-looking singer, and four backing singers just happy to be there, singing a song about nothing in particular, apart from having a laugh and a joke. And unlike some of their main rivals, who were either Greek and way too serious and straight-laced, Swedish and shouty, French and Celine Dion-esque, or Danish and looks more wooden than your common old garden bookcase from Ikea, this lot had an authenticity about them. Those six on stage weren't trying to do anything other than entertain. You also ended up with Tannel being damaged because he's a bit of a dick. For the previous week, Tunnel had stuck camera left and Dave camera right, and it was working well. Then, in a rush to get either to or from the stage, and then in a rush to either get to or from the stage, Tunnel starts running and ends up twatting himself in the eye with the corner of his accreditation badge. What were they going to do about this? Your intrepid broadcaster-in-chief and his associates said to Mayan, well, why don't you just swap them over? So yes, in part you have me to blame for what you see on your screen. No, no, don't thank me. That voting sequence that I've seen a million times has made all the sweeter knowing that I was behind a dividing curtain between the press centre and the green room, screaming like a fucking banshee every time points were awarded to Estonia. Because we got to know Mayan, we had signs made up saying Victory for Estonia, in Estonian naturally. She smiled coyly when she saw this because she thought they didn't have a prayer. However, those very average televoters at home decided almost en masse to sack off what would have been a worthy winner musically and go for the out-and-out enthusiasm and entertainment put forth by Dave Tannell and 2XL. Seaside Special in the 70s, Live from the London Palladium in the 60s, Coronation Street in the present day, they all go to show that the viewing public might not know what's good for them, but they know what they like. They liked a bit of the old continental knockabout, as Wogan used to say. It got 198 points in the end, with nine sets of 12 points, giving it a 21-point win. My chum and I, as soon as the voting had finished, raced the seemingly marathon-like distance from the press centre to the bowels of Parkin, Got let in, or blagged, whichever the may, got let in, or blagged, the memory is cloudy, in a side door, and to this day I have never run so fast into the arms of a waiting woman. Mine and a Finnish journalist friend were stood by the side of the stage looking agog at what had just happened. We urged her to go on stage and get the damn trophy she'd just won. She wouldn't, so I did. Well, not on camera, clearly because I'm not the talent but I couldn't resist actually going onto the Eurovision stage and peering out from Parken afterwards. She got her hands on the trophy, finally, and it was, when I last asked her, in her ironing room, because, well, where else would you put something so valuable? The boys came home to a hero's welcome, and the main square in Tallinn was packed for their homecoming. It is said they don't speak to each other now, which is a shame, but they've done something that no other Estonians have ever done to date – won the damn contest. People are chiming that it's unworthy and that there were better songs, and as I've said, that's probably all true. But they don't care. They've won. Estonia won the 2001 contest. No amount of bitching can take that from them. Malta were on a roll. Since they came back in 1991, they finished outside the top ten only once, and frankly, I'm not surprised times three failed because they couldn't actually sing. They'd had two third places, and a win was seemingly just a matter of time. Last year, Mr Phil, talking about himself in the third person, deciding that he quite liked a purveyor of cheap Latin beats who would go on to be a deputy speaker in the Maltese Parliament. And no, I'm not making that up. She is currently on the Privileges Committee and I wonder if she can merengue her way into meetings. That's just me, isn't it? Back to our story and someone had to follow Claudette. A daunting task and no mistake. Ira Losco fancied it, so to speak. She got four songs to the big show at the Mediterranean Conference Centre in downtown Valletta, a quarter of the whole damn field. It's worth pointing out here that the televoting was a new and interesting thrill in Malta this year, but they didn't quite trust the inhabitants of Europe's sunniest rock, so they only accounted for one eighth of the total vote, with the other seven eighths coming from unknown judges, whose scores were revealed on a PowerPoint presentation from Microsoft ME, and I'm not making that up either. When you go- Ira will come back next year and wreak her revenge. The juries and the televote were in complete accord though, luckily. The juries gave you in 134 out of 140, and the televote 12 meant that it was a bit of a rout. May the world the
1: wind blow.
0: This year's entry, Brizio Faniello, is the oldest of a clan of singers that include him, his younger sister Claudia, who will try eight times in a row to win the approval of her peers, only to discover that it wasn't her turn, and then getting to Kiev in 2017 and promptly failing to qualify. Fab, though, discovered his passion for singing at an early age, but also wanted to play sports ball and buggered off to Turin for a year. Well, we've all done it. Well, most of us did. He chose to follow his throat, return to Malta and release three albums. He, like his sister, would keep coming back to the Malta song for Europe and was runner-up to the sainted Claudette with this thing. There
1: must have been a change of heart The feelings are over You broke my heart and How could there be this change of heart? It's not an illusion Cause the pain is still inside
0: Seemingly, those jurors and television viewers in Malta were still hung up on their cheap Latin beats because they went for a song that wasn't that far removed from last year's but replaced Claudette, who can never be replaced, with a younger male model who says gays don't watch Eurovision. So off he minced to Copenhagen with a piece of light Latin pop in his back pocket on the hopes of a nation on his broad shoulders but he unpacked some over-choreography in this song and none of it's by him. The backing singers do Nicky French's hand movements to the camera at the end of the chorus and the girls just gyrate behind him to not much effect. Also, the mix seems wrong as well, and I'm basing this on two facts. The first one is that it just sounds wrong. That and the girls' microphones are seemingly turned up too late when they have to sing, and it just sounds cacophonous rather than harmonic. There were just better songs in this competition, and even the most generous commentator would have heard that Fab was on a hiding to not very much. Apart from in Denmark and Russia, bizarrely, who gave him 12 and 7 points respectively. It would only gain another 29 points from around Europe. And if you can finish inside the top 10 with a meagre 48 points, you know you dodged a bullet. He'd come back to Malta Song and try again, and again, and again. And the burgers of Malta decided it was his turn again in 2006. I'm pretty certain he'd wish they hadn't bothered. Greece has not always been a banger powerhouse of this contest. In fact, it could be argued that for the first years of their Eurovision journey, they were bang average, bordering on the hideous. They were either withdrawing because they were having a spat with Turkey, or not doing very well at all. They'd even taken three years out after their well-publicised debacle and mismanagement of their 1998 entry, which, if reports are to be believed, almost led to their disqualification. They were relegated in 1999 and failed to turn up in Stockholm because they said they couldn't afford to go. For the reintroduction to the contest, they decided to have a national final held at the Rex Music Hall in Athens, a name which makes me think of some sort of canine version of Knees Up Mother Brown, with ten songs slated to take place. Sadly or unsurprisingly depending on your point of view one of them just had to go and get itself disqualified because it wouldn't be Greece or Eurovision without a bit of drama. So ultimately you were left with nine songs which were whittled down to four for a so-called super final with a jury and televoting deciding the winner. There ended up being a split decision between the jury who went for this one... Sung by the not-very-Greek-sounding Kim Connors, entitled One More Time. No, no, no. Nowhere near as good as that one. Who looked like a Greek version of Bonnie Tyler without the talent, but wearing a bleached version of Bianca Schomburg's outfit. Yeah, she gets another mention, all right singing a song that has jury bait written all the way through it. It's dramatic and slow-paced, and Kim begs for the votes that come her way. The other song was this... The Greek-sounding up-tempo pop music song sung by those famous Swedish Greeks Nikos Panagiotis, whom, even if you had only seen him once, you would instantly define as Greek, and Helena Paparizou, who's your typical Greek lovely in a tight dress for the lads. But it had hits in Sweden, specifically this one... which was the first song in Greek to crack the top 10 in Sweden. And name another one, I'll wait. Not thought of one? What a surprise. Anyhow, the jury didn't like this song quite as much as Kim's one, but, predictably, with the heady mix of bazooki music, dancing straight out of the tales of the unexpected opening titles, and Helena not only being very good-looking but having very solid voice, they got 45% of the televote to Kim's 30, and they were declared the winners. For the Greeks and Eurofans, this was almost the second coming. Antique were installed as one of the pre-contest ones to watch, and by the time it got to Copenhagen, one could see why. Apart from a change of outfit, precisely nothing had changed between Athens and Copenhagen. Elena was now dressed in all white, with her dress cut all the way down her front, looking like someone had had an accident with the pinking shears just before she got on stage. This appealed to a large demographic that may not have been entirely paying attention on the telly box until about now minutes. The song itself is a classic Eurovision song, with a modern for Greece twist of having non Greek in the song, a first for them. Elena and Nikos make it look and sound easy with the choreo being less than your face than we get in the modern throw the kitchen sink at it Greek and Cypriot songs of these days. It's basically Elena waving her hands about and gyrating her hips, and Nikos seated on a stool approximating to a bazooki and lending his vocal support. But Elena didn't need it. All that from the four backing singers, one of whom I read as a sainted Shirley Clamp. Mean-sharp- An argument could be made before any of the points had come in that this was the one to beat. Principally because it was true to itself and wasn't trying to be clever or kitsch, but Greek and in a televoting context, reaching as many Greeks outside Greece would be a positive. When it came to the scoring, it got the expected 12 from Sweden, plus a 12 from Spain because they always like a pretty lady singing a song. That's about it though two sets of 12 points. It only got 110 as well from Israel and despite scoring points from every single country in the contest, they were not getting the consistent high scores across the board needed to challenge for the title. It ended up in third place with 147 points. Greece's hopes had been built up and then crushed by the public, the people they thought they had in the palm of its hand. ERT and the Eurovision then went through a mini brain explosion in 2002 and 2003 before thinking that they needed more up-tempo shenanigans to do well in this contest, literally telling Europe what a good song was for most of the next few years without deviating from that recipe. Elena will come back to the contest as well. I wonder how she'd do. In the latest edition of Phrases You Never Thought Phil Would Say, the quality of the songs in the 2001 Dance Melody Grand Prix is stratospheric. I could quite happily do a podcast on the entire final as it stands, but I won't. But you do get a deep dive on it here because, frankly, it's what you deserve. Ten songs were on stage at the Mesa Centre in Herning that night. Five of which got through to a superfinal, and every one of them is a banger, as the youths would say. The weakest one came last... Yeah. because bubblegum pop still has a place at this contest then a genuine bona fide classic came next
1: the <laughs>
0: sung by Helga Engelbrecht, the writer of this slice of
1: genius. (laughs) And it's
0: just a damn good song with a great chorus to it that would have done well in Copenhagen. He'd be back next year too with the equally great... And Murillo came third with this. A song which gets stuck in my head on a monthly basis when I realise just how brilliant it is. Also, is it the law in Denmark that great female singers have to have a gap in their front teeth? Bay Six were the runner-up. They were an a cappella band. Alexia play Whitliff Bay.
2: If you like to sing it, if you like to swing it, do it with a-
0: Thank you. Their brand of a cappella wasn't as cloying and smug, but was about to land down under. None of those pieces of songwriting got a look in when it came to the one which got the ticket. Rollo and King were a band that no one wanted to play on the radio. they got gotten their first big break with the song "Ved Duvet Vet Hun du which YouTube kindly tells me sounds, and it's pronounced something like this. But it failed to get any radio play until they changed promoters. It went so big that P3 decided to put it on their hit list. They almost didn't enter the DMGP with this song either. The story goes that they went to their record company with another song, which was dismissed as being crap, and Surin was asked if he had anything else. Not being prepared for the rejection, he said he didn't, but started playing this chorus which was the only thing he'd written. According to an interview that would with BT some years later, the same record company exec declared, it's a hit, go home and finish writing it. So they did. The group were named not after the small round chocolate sweets, or King Rolo, But two popular dogs names in Denmark. I suspect though naming the next group for the UK Rex and Rover would be the equivalent. actually, that's not a bad idea. Søren and Stefan grabbed a passing senior Svensson because Søren's brother knew she could sing, and they recorded the demo. Fast forward a couple of months and they'd just won in front of 2 million Danes and the honour of hosting the hometown entry was theirs. They started out with no expectations, but as Eurovision approached, they felt the attention from the world's press. And me. Because in my first moment of, oh my god, I actually press now, i met their record exec and Surin. In fact, my abiding memory of that meeting was that he was preposterously tall. Couldn't tell you what he said to me. He could have declared undying love I was too overawed. The hype around the song grew, not just because I'd met him, I hasten to add here, but because the people were realising that there wasn't a lot to beat in the European final. Everything was in place for their seemingly inevitable win. Their record company was preparing to release an English-language album. At least 38,000 tanked-up Danes, fuelled by Carlsberg and other beers that are available, would rule their hometown heroes on, and, seemingly, all they had to do was turn up and sing the damn thing and success would be waiting for them. Now we knew how David Beckham felt, they said. Everywhere we go we had journalists. Yeah, sorry about that. They turned up and sung the song, and they didn't put a foot wrong. They didn't come across as slappable likes on stage, just a couple of lads singing a song, Defin with a guitar, Sirin had the stronger voice, their harmonicarist was there as well, plus two other backing singers. They even had two winners' moments, one when Senior walked to the front of the stage and stole the show. The second one was when Surin kissed her at the right moment of the song. It was totally
1: flawless.
0: Unfortunately, despite being technically perfect in every way, the people of Europe had a direct choice to make. They could either vote for the song that was performed better or the song that entertained them the most, and they went with the latter. Søren and Stefan ended up with 177 points, 21 behind Estonia with six sets of 12s. Their dreams of European domination had been crushed by the one variable they hadn't taken into account – humans. They stopped recording together a couple of years later and went on to do different things. Stefan went back to his day job as a teacher. Suren battled depression and worked as a gym manager and as a masseuse, but is now hankering for the stage game. They rarely talk to each other except over Facebook, but are philosophical about the whole thing. It was a great experience, and I got a car and a flat out of it, says Stefan. The winner has a trophy in her ironing room. The runners up got a car and a flat. Who says this contest makes you forget your roots?